Hello, and welcome to the Emotional Expedition Podcast. I'm Meg Thomas, and if you want to live a more open-hearted, magical life, it all starts with your emotions. This podcast will take you on a journey, helping you to better understand, express, release, and heal your emotions. Let's get exploring. In this episode of the Emotional Expedition podcast, I have the divine privilege of interviewing Jana Wilson. She's the author of the prescriptive memoir, Wise Little One, Learning to Love and Listen to My Inner Child. And in our conversation, Jana explains the concept of a prescriptive memoir, which combines personal storytelling with practical advice for readers. She also shares how her own experiences with trauma led her to found the emotional healing system, which has helped others on their own healing journeys. The book is a powerful, it's moving, beautiful memoir that also offers readers concrete steps to work through their own challenges. And this has become one of the top three favorite memoirs I've ever read. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I am here with Jana Wilson, who has just changed my life by reading her book. And this is one of the most beautiful memoirs I've ever experienced in my life. And I am just, I feel so lucky and so honored. And I don't even know how she ended up here. (laughs) And (laughs) I'm so grateful to be able to have this conversation with you today, Jana. And of course, the book will be linked in the show notes. But just so I say it again, it's called Wise Little One, a prescriptive memoir, learning to love and listen to my inner child a really powerful story, a beautiful memoir, and also has this prescriptive quality to it. Will you tell us what is a prescriptive memoir? I'd never read that term before. What does that mean to you? Right. So nonfiction books like self-help books are called prescriptive. They're prescriptive nonfiction. So when I began working with my developmental editor, she had said, oh, this is going to be a prescriptive memoir. Well, I'd never heard that term either. And I thought about some of the you know memoirs that I'd read. And because I'm the founder of Emotional Healing Systems, and I used all the trauma to do my own healing journey, and now I've helped people for 19 years, I decided... I'm going to put it instead of a memoir on the book, a prescriptive memoir. So someone knows I'm not just telling you my story, but I'm going to put little tidbits and little boxes at some of the chapters. There's 11 chapters that contain, hey, have you thought about this or try this? So it's kind of like a prescription for the reader. I felt like Yeah. My husband said, are you sure that's a genre? Can you do that? I said, listen, I'm publishing this book myself. I'm the publisher. I get to say yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm, I love that. Yeah. It's really, the box is really, I had, I stopped and reread them because it was really thought provoking of, okay, how do I look at this shadow? How do I look at this kind of work? So it was really beautiful. And I believe so much in the power of storytelling 
And I think that's what you do so beautifully in this memoir. Will you take us to the beginning? Will you tell us about your story and what it was like as a child? I think it's going to be so helpful to just show where you came from and how we get to where you are today. Yeah, thank you for having me on and just everything, Megan. I just, it warms my heart to hear you say how much you enjoyed the book because, of course, my intent in writing this book, even though there's, you know, some triggers, there's some traumas that could really activate the reader. It's, I, I live by the adage, what you can't feel, you can't heal. Mm-hmm. And so if it does bring up, you know, those feelings for somebody who's reading it of their own childhood, that now's the perfect time. And hey, come to one of our group retreats. We'll support you even more on how to use these tools to heal. But yeah, so I grew up in the South, Bible Belt. My parents were very young. They'd known each other since they were in middle school and had been friends and ended up falling in love. And my dad came from an alcoholic family. His dad immigrated from Ireland, the classic, you know, Irish alcoholic and came from a lot of abuse. So in the story, I really wanted to show because when I'm working with someone, we always go back to developmental trauma, right? That's birth to seven. And even if someone doesn't have trauma like I did, in adverse childhood experiences, there's 10 questions. It's Mm -hmm. called the ACE test. I scored 10 out of the 10. So my mom was diagnosed with mental illness. Back then it was called manic depressive. It was um, bipolar. She was on lithium on and off. She wouldn't stay on medications. She also had borderline personality. So she would threaten to kill herself and sometimes slice her wrist. And as a child, I would find her and wrap her wrist up. And, you know, she would get taken away from us and put in a hospital. They would call it a nervous breakdown back then. They would do electroconvulsive therapy on her. And so, you know, the cool thing though is there was a time in my life in my 30s, when I began to realize once I started to get my training and really formulate this emotional healing system that I was going to create for my business was this idea of what if my mom's soul was the perfect soul for me? Because by going through all she did, when she would go in the hospital and they would rewire her brain, she would come out in a higher state of consciousness. And then she was, of course, downloading in my little impressionable sponge astrology and esoteric and mystical teachings, Raymond Moody, Edgar Casey, the sleeping prophet. She was really interested in things that, of course, I just absorbed. I took it in. And then later, I'm pretty sure it's what led me to be the teacher I am today. And, you know, so it was the perfect recipe. My parents, um, one of my teachers, Debbie Ford, she has a book called Secret of the Shadow. And then there's a whole chapter in it about if you were to look in a book and it was recipes of humans, what would your recipe be? It was like, you know, take two, you know, teenagers that brains aren't fully developed and put them together. And, you know, one is mentally ill, one's an alcoholic. They create all this chaos, throw in, you know, 
18 years of being married to somebody and step parenting five kids and yada, yada, and voila, 50, cook it for 57 years and you find an emotional healing educator. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like the perfect recipe, right? But of course, living it, Megan, when I was little was not easy. Did you even know that your childhood could have looked different? Did you even recognize that something was different about the way you were growing up? Absolutely. I I knew because I had, you know, I had an interesting, so my mom, because of her mental illness, she didn't feel worthy. She had lost her dad. She internalized that it was her fault that she lost her dad. He died of a massive heart attack. And so when that happened, I think, you know, my mom, she was very different than her siblings. So when I went to visit aunts and uncles, they had functioning lives, right? My one aunt was very wealthy. So I would go from extreme poverty and then I would, you know, I would see and experience a very different lifestyle, at least socioeconomically. And then with my dad's side of the family too, his brother was a multimillionaire. So again, I was influenced by that. And I saw them having somewhat function and of course, go to friend's house. And that's what happens. We start comparing ourselves, right? Like, oh, you know, something's wrong with me. And so I got the message. I think I was in third grade when a teacher I overheard tell another teacher that my parents wouldn't be coming to the PTA because, well, we were white trash. Mm-hmm. And that really, that stigma that label and this, you know, being, it was very upsetting. I didn't understand what white trash was. I knew I was white. I knew what trash was, but I asked my mom, you know, and of course she went to school and showed them what white trash is. (laughs) (laughs) So I laugh about it because they did behave that way, right? They behaved like a Jerry Springer show, you know, fighting and chaos. and, And then the rest of my family just was like, oh my God, you know, they're too much. But as kids, it wasn't our fault, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't. But, you know, my only inner resource was this connection because growing up in the South, anybody who's listening that even knows anyone from the South or is Southern or anything will get this, you're either in church or you're a backslider, right? So my parents would be in church and then I'd be getting all that teaching and they would change churches And I began to have this really deep, deep connection to guidance that would communicate to me from a very young age. And of course, at 12, I start the book out in the prologue with the most profound experience of my life. I would still say it was the most profound because it was a spiritual awakening. It was a near-death experience. My dad's beating my mother and I get pulled out of my body out of fear, out of the trauma of experiencing that, I'm begging to be saved, to be, you know, rescued. And I'm pulled out of my body and I'm immediately one with the cosmos. Like I swear it was like I could have reached out and just touched star nebulas and Mm. I could still see them, my body and hear, see the trailer we lived in, hear the fighting. But I had that peace that passes all understanding. And I was so at peace and As I was looking at this, I was told those are not your parents and that is not your life. This is. And as soon as 
I heard that I was back in my body. And I remember thinking, am I dead? And I was like, okay, if I am, I'm like, oh, this feels good. I'm good. You know, I'm like, but at 12, and when I was writing the book, I had a flash of what was going on that precipitated that. And it was, I was having suicide ideation. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to live. And this had been kind of a reoccurring theme, even up until that point, but it was really intensifying like to where I was actually planning and thinking how I was going to do it at 12. Mm -hmm. And then when I had that experience, I was in bliss after that. It set me on a course that kept me in a higher state of consciousness so that I could manage all the pain and suffering that I was going through because it didn't stop. By the time I was 16, my mom shot my dad. Mm Mm-hmm. It was Christmas Eve. I'm in an ambulance on the way to the hospital with her looking like the bride of Frankenstein and them operating on him, not knowing if he's dead. You know, there was some crazy, crazy making. (laughs) Mm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing, sharing your story. I imagine that there were the light and the shadow. Both were getting imprinted on you from this time some of the belief patterns so yes when your mom would come home from these experiences in the hospital she would be imprinting or giving planting seeds of some of the work that would come to influence your life like edgar casey and all of the learning i think how old were you when you started meditating very young Yeah, very young, probably like around seven, because I remember it was her first hospital stint and she came back with a 33 vinyl Mm -hmm. and she turned it on and the lady was like, you know, let's breathe, close your eyes. And I really got into it. She would make, you know, an art class in the hospital. She would make, I remember one, she had the prayer of serenity. So I'd memorized it. So that would be helpful. I would go and I would just say that prayer over and over. God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot, you know, that was very life-saving. But she had another one. I don't put this in the book, but it was today is the beginning of the rest of your life. And I would get really confused. I'd say, but mom, no, I've been here seven years or eight years. It's not the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't understand like what, but I would, I would Mm -hmm. entertain it in my mind. And these thoughts and concepts that she downloaded in me, began to expand my awareness to the point by around nine, I could now conceptualize the impermanence of life. Mm. I was able to be in an experience and be in the witnessing of the experience and be aware, okay, this is temporary. I've been here before. It passed. This too shall pass. It will again Like I could start to manage myself from this higher state of awareness that was remarkable because I didn't know at the time that other people didn't have that awareness. Yeah. No, we didn't. Not in these ways. And so were there also limiting beliefs, negative beliefs that were getting imprinted? at that time as oh, well. Yeah, of course. What and, what yeah. did those look like? What were some of those thought patterns that you were believing that you now have proven are not true? 
And they still continue to surface. You know, I don't believe we arrive. We continue. We gain better spiritual tools, expand our awareness so that when those thoughts come in, we know how to manage them. So I just want to make that clear. I certainly don't think that anyone, if they're still in human form, probably has arrived to some enlightened state, right, of Mm -hmm. self-realization. I mean, for me, you know, at probably around four was when I first developed the belief that I'm bad mm-hmm. and that the world's not safe. So those are my two core operating false beliefs. Yep. And they were derived from seeing my dad, interrupting my dad, suffocating my mom with a pillow. In that moment, I didn't feel safe, right? I didn't feel safe with him. I didn't quite understand why at the time. So that really filtered my perception of the world. The only time I felt safe was with my grandmother. And then I'm bad. Around that same time, I began to act out sexually, four or five years old. You know, a dog, a big Great Dane got on my back and was humping me and all my cousins were laughing. It was a major trauma for me. I don't write about it in the book. But these kind of experiences were happening, mm-hmm. and I was aware of, even at that time, I had awareness. I just, have obviously, you have heard it gets thrown around all the time, an old soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yep. So there's actually four different soul ages. There's infant souls. There's baby souls. At five soul ages, there's infant, baby, young, mature, and old. Mm -hmm. So I'm certainly an old soul, meaning that this isn't my first rodeo, right? I've done this enough times that I think even as a child, I had awareness that was still with me from previous incarnations, that I, I was aware we're poor. But of course, I saw my aunt and them, they had money. But I was aware that there were people that were worse than me in places of the world, like in Africa or, right? And I would tell myself that. It was a way that I could assuage some of the the, the kind of existential pain that I was feeling of not fitting in, comparing myself to other girls, I'm not good enough, was another false belief But, you know, infant souls are born in places, you know, why weren't you and I born in the Congo or Yemen or someplace in Mm -hmm. Syria or war-torn, you know, where life expectancy isn't long and because we're not infant souls. So according to this teaching I'm sharing, for me, we don't know if it's the truth. We live in a very mysterious world. But I always say to students and clients and to myself, and I say it in the book, if I can think a new way that could help me shift my perception and empower me, I would think what created me, my creator God, would want that for me to be empowered, not disempowered. Mm -hmm. So as soon as I began to look at, I chose my parents you know, based on reading Many Lives, Many Masters with Dr. Brian Weiss, that information was not available to me as a Christian, Yeah, right? It was outside of my belief system. But as a young adult, when I read it, 
everything inside of me. How do we know the truth? It sets us free. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I felt free. I, I began to view myself like, wow, yeah. if I chose those parents, if I chose this experience, yep. I'm a badass, man. I'm like, yes. <laughs> I'm destined for something. <laughs> mm. I love that you said that because I grew up going to church and and was limited in that way. And it wasn't until I think going down the path of yoga and all reading all the spiritual awakening books. And I, I have Brian Weiss's book right back there. And that felt like freedom to me. Once I realized I chose my parents and and to recently discover that my dad isn't biologically my dad i also there's some freedom in that in the sense of i chose this experience i chose this yeah. oh. and i would love to talk about that there was this beauty in the book in your early childhood where you're experiencing so much suffering. I mean, there were times I just had to put the book down for a moment and just, uh, there was so much suffering. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you had this beautiful imagination where you were mm -hmm. visualizing yourself having a different life, the life you pictured when you were older. And can you talk about what that process started to look like for you? And I, I mean, it, it just seems like the most beautiful form of manifestation that I didn't learn about myself until much, much later in life. Yeah, I think, you know, children are so connected still and tethered to the spirit world and our imaginations are so rich. Einstein said, you know, imagination is more important than knowledge because it'll take you where knowledge never could. And I was definitely an imaginative child. I'm sure some of it was disassociation from the suffering and the chaos that was all around me. So it was my superpower, right? I could go into my imagination with my Barbie dolls or climbing a tree or, you know, whatever, my dog Scotty or, mm. and I, or my horse, like I could, I could connect with animals. I'm still that way, you know, very connected to animals. One of my baby chickens the other day, I think I shared with you before we started, got killed by one of the hens and, and I, it was really hard. Little Jana had a hard time. I had to just give her permission to cry and mourn. And, but my imagination as I was writing the book, I had an awareness, you know, Megan, like, okay, I'm a manifester for sure. And I had awareness of like, when I would tell these stories, especially to my husband, you know, about Elvis inviting me to his room or oh. meeting the president of Costa Rica, or, you know, like, he's like, like, you've lived lifetimes, like people don't even live in one lifetime. Like, <laughs> He's like, how did that happen? And I'm like, you know, I think it was just my imagination. And then, of course, when I'm writing the book, I really start to see, wow, the gift of the trauma that had me disassociate with the material world and go into my inner world and make it more real than the outer world that I was experiencing. So I just 
enjoyed that. I'm, I tend to be kind of an introvert. People are always shocked because, you know, I lead retreats and I'm very communicative and mutable and I'm a Sagittarius and, you know, I'm very, but I am very introverted. And I think as a child, I read a lot, Pippi Longstocking. I was with, loved her books, anything on adventure, travel and going new places. And so I just lived in this imaginary world and would begin to just manifest. I mean, I don't go into it in the story about Elvis, but Elvis was such a big deal in our family. You know, I'm certain I spent a lot of time in my imagination pretending he was my dad, mm-hmm. pretending, you know, that he loved me. And then here he is standing, you know, six feet away, inviting my mom and I to his suite, like mm. pretty crazy. Mm. Oh, so so powerful to be able to hold that the paradox of what you were experiencing and the possibility that still existed around you. And you see that in this idea of becoming the cycle breaker in your family. What does that mean to you? And and when did you start to realize, oh, I'm repeating the pattern and that is not the path I want to go down? Mm-hmm. Oh, such a good question. I was aware I didn't want to repeat what they were doing very young, right? Like, it's like, okay. And then, you know, becoming a cycle breaker. So I think the soul, I believe we choose the parents, everything. I even believe like my birthday is so auspicious Mm -hmm. that I'm born on the winter solstice, right? On the darkest night of the year. And I end up, my work is about teaching people light and darkness like how light always overcomes darkness. Like it's kind of fascinating. And I think, so I was pretty conscious. So I would call out, I was smart, you know, I'm an old soul. So I knew like, oh, I'd call out the elephant in the room and the adults didn't like me from the time I was young Mm -hmm. because I could figure out, I was very astute in figuring out the hidden nuances of human behavior and deceit or lying or hypocrisy, I would always bring the light to it in the family. And of course, they wanted me to shut up, you know, so I had all kinds of names, your mouth, you got a big mouth, you know, you need to, you need to learn how to, you know, children should be seen, not heard kind of thing. And I was constantly getting soap in my mouth, getting my mouth slapped. I mean, I really didn't talk about all that in the book. It's Mm -hmm. like, you got to pick and choose your traumas. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. So I was constantly getting this message, but I was also getting reflected back. Like my mom would always say, you know, I am your mother. You need to respect me. And I would think to myself, but I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't respect you. You're not respectable. You know, just the Bible says, respect your parents. Well, not if they're abusing you. Like, there's nothing respectable about that. And I knew that at school, too. I respected the teachers who showed me respect, mm-hmm. right? Who acted respectable. I didn't respect the ones that didn't just because they were an authority, right? And I think it's kind of, you know, what's happened in the past few years this idea of giving our autonomy away to someone else. Like, no, I'm sovereign and I, I know what's right for me and what's not, right? And that. Uh, Anyway, 
So yeah, I was the cycle breaker. I was a disruptor in that family system and constantly doing it to the point where now as a 57-year-old woman, I don't have relationship with anybody in my family of origin. Mm-hmm. Both my mom and dad are past. My brother is very different from me. The only thing we have in common is the trauma bond, yep. right? Mm-hmm. And I've already healed it. He hasn't. So there's not a lot of conversation. The rest of the family, the cousins, the people I talk about, you know, the they're all, oh, you're going to hell or you're, you know, they, I have nothing in common. It's altitude, direction, and speed. My altitude's different than theirs, spiritually speaking. Mm-hmm. The direction I'm headed in life is very different than just, Me, 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 more and more for me. I'm all about what can I do to help and serve. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the speed, I mean, my growth game's pretty damn strong. You know, I'm I push myself probably a little too much sometimes to keep growing and evolving by asking the question anytime something shows up that I don't like, I take responsibility. What's the lesson? Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm always looking through this lens at everything. I'm in earth school, I'm here to learn lessons. And at some deep knowingness, I'm kind of like, bring it on. Because if there's another domain of space and time that (laughs) is a little more easy than this human experience, which can be very difficult and hard, I'm all in. Like, my soul's ready. Like, let's get there. (laughs) What made you want to share this? You feel me on that? Oh, I feel you. That's why I'm like, (laughs) sometimes I say, I'll say to my husband, like, I'd like to just come back as one of our dogs. Like our, our dogs yeah. are so beloved <laughs> and so taken Love, care of. Yes. And I'm like, that would be, you know, I'm always telling my pup, I, I believe he had a past life working as a fire dog or something because the way he responds to the, a fire whistle, he's like at attention and ready to work. And I keep reminding him, you're here for this lifetime just to like, take it easy. We're just going to take care of you and spoil you. And you don't have to work this lifetime in this, in that way. I love it. Yeah. Which all ties into, so being the cycle breaker and being why you're here on earth, why did you want to tell this story? So, I believe every soul is here with a unique gift and purpose. And my teacher, Deepak Chopra, 35 years, he's been my teacher. It's one of the main messages that I always got from him was you are here to do something unique that no one else can do. And when I started this journey, you know, and all my trainings and all the work that I gathered, I would have this internal conversation. Well, so-and-so is doing this and they're doing it. What makes me, nobody's going to listen to me. Why would they listen to me? And uh, until finally, I was like, yes, I'm here. And I it's driving me, this purpose and this passion to share with others that no matter what happened. I have a student coming out and a client, a private client coming out in July. And she, I mean, her childhood makes mine look like a piece of cake, mm. like intense trauma, gang rape. She was abducted. She was just horrible things. She was the product of a rape. Mm-hmm. Her mother was raped and kept the baby. And she's got holds two masters. She works for our government, pretty high up in DC. 
She is amazing. I am just blown away by her, but she doesn't have the tools and she's struggling, right? Mm -hmm. So she's coming here. So if this book could meet someone where they're at and they could say, okay, oh, I see how her parents developed these beliefs. She developed these beliefs. And then they could begin to view their own parents, what beliefs maybe they created. I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. And how they condition me to believe that too. And I could break this cycle within my family. I mean, that's the greatest gift of all. I feel like at this stage of the game with 60 approaching soon and a grandchild and another one possibly on the way. And what's the legacy that I'm going to leave? And my daughter Taylor is just the most compassionate, heart-centered. She's a yogi. She's a spiritual teacher herself. My grandson's emotionally intelligent. He advocates for himself. My son-in-law, I, I would have given birth to him. He's just the most beautiful human. I broke a cycle, right? Like my daughter, from the time she's young, is having a pretty, and it wasn't always perfect for her. You see that in the, mm-hmm. in the story, her conditioning years, me being a single mom. But the one thing I did right was I made it all about her. I became this child. Yes, she chose me, but she's my teacher. Yeah. Right. And, and she's here to teach me as much as I'm here to teach her. And so I'm going to, it's that Cahill Gibran. I think I put the quote in the book. Your children are not your children. They are life longing for itself. They come through you, not from you. You know, be the stable bow that shoots them into the future of which you'll never go. You know, so I just was like, how can I create stability for my child? And it wasn't easy in those first years. But one thing she knew was her well-being was more important than anything to me in my my world. And I made sure she got that in those first seven years of conditioning, that you are loved unconditionally. I am here for you. I would give my life for you. And so I think when we do that, right, when we really show up, see and hear our children, We don't live vicariously through them. We accept they have their own interest and journey, and we're not sure what that is. And it might not be what we want for them, but it's not our place, Mm -hmm. right? Mm. Yeah, so I I did. I broke the cycle with Taylor and even my stepchildren. You know, I've now on seventh stepchild. My (laughs) first husband had five. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I had step, I was a grandma in my 30s because my ex-husband was, you know, 13 years older and, and I poured into those children and my contract, my soul contract wasn't with them. Mm -hmm. And how do I know that is because it was a short time. And now, even though I've tried to stay in contact, we're not, Mm -hmm. but I know I sowed seeds in their lives that has helped them be better parents, be better humans. So I feel like that's what we're here to do, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Those are my people. Those are the people I want to be around are the ones that are here to help each other. Just help, help each and other. Serve. And help each other remember and come back to these inner truths that we already know. And one of the there were so many heartbreaking moments, but I've been doing a lot of work, especially with launching this podcast last year and just going deeper into the emotions and the effect that 
this has these emotions not only have this an emotional effect, but they have physical effects on ourselves as well. And you share the story when you're staying at your aunt's house and you have just experienced this major trauma. And I imagine that it was PTSD that you're experiencing and you're wetting the bed. And their way of trying to correct this was by shaming you. And yeah. uh, how have you healed the shame that was existing within yourself and then being projected on you from so many different angles? Yeah, that was a tough time because they bought that contraption, you know, with the alarm. So every time I would wet the bed, and of course, I've just had a gun put to my head by my mother. They didn't know that. I don't believe that my aunt knew that. When I was, um, my aunt died in 2018. I went to see her in 2015, three years before she passed. And she had dementia, but she knew me. And, you know, and I said, Aunt Jenny, when I lived with you, did you know what had happened, what mom had done to us when we came to live with you when I came? And she said she didn't. She didn't know until later. Mm -hmm. And I said, because I need to say something to you. And I know you're older now and I don't want to hurt you, you know, but I need to share with you if you're willing to listen how it affected me when I lived with you. And it was hard for her, but she said yes, you know, and she cried. And and I just said it was it was even more wounding than living with my mother, mm. being shamed like I was with you and my cousins. I have complex post-traumatic, right? So that's reoccurring all the time. So it, with somebody with P CPSD, children will start to wet the bed again. I mean, that was kind of my... But as soon as I was back in safety with my grandmother, I never wet the bed again, mm -hmm. right? I just didn't feel safe. But even in that home, in the 90s, I did work with a PhD author by the name of John Bradshaw. He's passed away now, but he on PBS would have these specials all about shame and how in dysfunctional families, how it you know, bind you to keep you in that shame-based personality. And shame, according to Hawkins and Power Versus Force, I don't know if you know of that mm -hmm. book, but he talks about the levels of human consciousness and shame is the lowest. Yeah. It's like the streets of Calcutta, right? The leopards, you're a no right? I, that's how I felt in that home. I'm going from extreme poverty now to a home with servants, with private airplane, with, you know, a driver. I mean, my aunt and uncle were very wealthy. And it was just, again, another nail in the coffin of I'm, I'm just trash. I'm not enough. I'm whatever. And it was extremely painful. But during the 90s, I go through a hypnosis with Dr. Bradshaw. And he takes us back. It was a small group of us to a time where we're going to rescue that child from an event that happened in our childhood. Now, as a hypnotherapist today, this is what I would do with clients. Mm -hmm. But this I had never experienced before, ever. And no therapist I'd been to, nobody had done this with me. I was 28 when this happened. And I went back and immediately I was standing in that room with the two twin beds 
there's little Jana, you know, laying in the bed and I'm standing kind of in the dark shade of the night watching her. And he said, go to the child. And I do, I go sit on the edge of the bed and I wake her up and it's me and little Jana. And he says, tell them you're here, who you are, and everything's going to be okay, that you're going to get through this. And then ask them, do they want to come with you? And so I, of course, she jumped right up, ready to go with me. And we walk out and he had us walk far, far, far and look back and see our parents. Even though I was at my aunt and uncle, it was my parents. He said, see them, see them getting smaller and smaller and smaller until they disappear. And then all of a sudden, organ music came on. He was very, he had a flair for the dramatics. <laughs> organ music came on and he started playing like funeral music. He said, now see them in the casket, the parents, even if they're alive or dead, it didn't matter. It was all just metaphorically, right? Just you're creating this and then say goodbye to them. It's time now for you to reparent the child. This was so mind expanding, this retreat. I asked my ex-husband a few years ago, he and I are still close. How was I when I came out of that experience? You know, and he said, You didn't talk for a few days. You were really, you know, processing a lot. And in the book, I share the story, you know, that I showed up and I didn't know it was me. But of course, I remembered it after I went through the experience with Bradshaw. I remembered, oh, my God, I remembered being a child and an angel came with blonde hair. But it was me, my future self. (laughs) Oh, I'm just putting that all together now, too. Okay. Mm. That was me that came. Yeah. And that stood there and and gave Mm. myself a positive expectancy for the future. Yeah. Not hope, because hope is a beggar. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Positive expectancy. It gave me this idea that I was going to be okay and everything was going to be okay. And it feels like spirit would always intervene a few years later when I'm 12, pulls me out of my body, reminds me again, mm-hmm. it's not your family. That's not your life. This is. Yeah. When did you realize this, the inner child? Like when did you know little Jana existed? In my 20s. Mm-hmm. Once I started to read like his book, Homecoming, anything that he was talking about this inner child and that I could actually reparent her and give her a childhood she didn't have, that lit me up because now I'm a mom. Mm -hmm. I gave birth to Taylor at 22 and I'm thinking, okay, I can live, I can raise my daughter and myself and give myself what my parents weren't able to give. And I can do it for her. Mm-hmm. Up until that point, I couldn't do it on my own. Yep. I didn't have enough self-worth. Having her come in was like, oh, my God, I could do for her what I can't do for me. And I am willing to do any whatever it takes. Yeah. Yeah. Will you tell us, because little Jana is such a huge part of this, will you tell us about your love story? Oh, yeah. So... <laughs> You know, so I think we all, you know, we grow up watching Cinderella and all the Disney and all those ideas of, you know, our knight in shining armor. And in Debbie's book, Secret of the Shadow, she tells a story about, you know, she's a drug addict, Debbie Ford. This was my teacher who I trained with and worked with. 
And she tells a story about no one's coming to save you. She finally realized she had to get up off the floor and save her own damn self. There's no white horse on a man on a white horse going to save her. And so this idea of, okay, no one can save me. I've got to save me, right? I've got to make the choices. My creator lives and breathes and moves through me. So is endowed me with this ability to, you know, mark a course and head in a direction, you know, to save myself. And, but yet I was still in my twenties. I mean, our brains not developed till we're 25. I'm a mom then. I'm so stressed trying to manage that I make a choice to marry someone who I love, but I wasn't in love with. And I stayed in that marriage for a long time. And, and I had experienced what I felt like being in love was right before I met him and the guy broke my heart. And so I I wanted to be safe. I was tired of my heart being hurt. I just wanted to raise my daughter and hide out. So I, I, I hid out. I hid out in my late 20s and 30s and early 40s in a marriage that was good on many levels, but he drank. It was still me, I think, searching for daddy because he was older, 13 years older. And I was always honest with him, though. I told him before I married him, I'm not in love with you. I could grow to love you. And if you're okay with that, then I'll marry you. But it was kind of an arrangement, right? And around 2007, I began observing myself constantly picking on him. And what I teach is our attention is our most valuable asset. What we place it on fertilizes it, right? It grows. Mm -hmm. So we've got to be very mindful. It's why we meditate to be aware. Where am I placing my attention? Well, at that time, my attention was predominantly on everything he did wrong and annoyed me. (laughs) I was a, you know, Mm -hmm. the classic nagging wife, like all the time. He would embarrass me. He would just, and so I caught it what I was doing. And I thought, okay, I'm going to write down what is the type of qualities of a partner I want to be. So I write this list of qualities and I realized there's quite a few qualities on there that I didn't possess. And, you know, like attracts like birds of a feather flock together. We've got to be in relationship with someone mirroring us back to ourselves. So I had to take responsibility. My ex-husband was mirroring to me irresponsible, he was marrying me things that I was trying to get him to change in hopes that, right? Mm-hmm. It would make, but I was helpless over changing him. I needed to look within. So once I started to do that, what happens when you place your attention on what you do want versus what you don't want, what you don't want starts to wither because you took your attention off of it mm-hmm. and go away, right? You're no longer feeding it. So now I was feeding this idea of this man who is inspiring and responsible and a leading, you know, a leader in his field and he's respected and all these good qualities. And I would get so in my imagination again, living and I, I didn't see a face. It could have even been my ex-husband. He could have shifted and rose Mm -hmm. to the occasion. Who knows? You know, I was very detached, but eventually my ex-husband got a DUI and everything unraveled and the path was clear. I had to leave that marriage. And once I did, it still took about two and a half years, but what little Jana and I did, I was really delving into reparenting work myself at that time because it was the first time, Megan, I, I mean, I, I left home at 18, I went to college, then I was with my mom briefly, 
you know, and then I was with Taylor's dad briefly, and then I was back with my mom. So it's fair to say I was with my mom until I was almost my late Mm twenties and then I was married. So I kind of, it's like a lot of us, you know, we go to college and then we might drop back home and then maybe we get married and we never live on our own. I never had an apartment. I never lived on my own. I'm 45 years, 44 years old, 46 living on my own. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) So I still had some work to do though, you know, because I had hit out and tried to play it safe. So of course, universe throws me some, (laughs) some challenges. I, I navigate them. I get through them. And then I'm finally in this place where little Jana and I am listening to her. I'm honoring her. What that looks like is I'm not, I'm not on dating sites. I'm not being with a man. I'm not giving my body away to a man. I'm very honorable of myself. I, I listen to myself. My health is at a peak. You know, I'm eating so good. I'm exercising. I'm doing everything to show little Jana because we love ourselves emotionally, how we talk, physically, how we treat our body, eat, move, organizationally, financially, relationships, and spiritually. So I was like checking them all like every day. How am I going to love myself emotionally, financially, physically, spiritually, relationships? You know, all the, I'm outgrowing this relationship. This person's marrying to me stuff that doesn't work for me anymore. Namaste. See you later. Not in a relationship <laughs> with you. So everything's like, change, you know, just turning really quick. And I end up at a meditation retreat with a teacher who I love, Sally Kempton. I don't know if you know her, but the goddesses of Shakti, Mm. one of the best yoga books. And I'm doing all this work with a goddess, you know, Durga and Kali and just, you know, really embracing this energy of the goddess. So I go on this retreat and there's nudity at the retreat. Well, I had sexual abuse as a child Coming from the South, we're pretty modest anyway. I wasn't comfortable. So little Jana kept saying, I don't like it here. <laughs> Let's go. But I didn't really know that's what she, why she was saying it until kind of after the fact. I mean, I knew I was uncomfortable with nudity at this retreat center, but I was having such deep meditations. And when I would go in, we're talking like six hours a day, I would hear, leave, leave. And I kept fighting it, right? My intuition, little Jana's the intuition. Oh, be quiet. We paid a lot of money for this. Just shut up and we're going to enjoy this, you know? Then I start getting sick, of course. My body starts breaking down. I've got the flu or something. I don't know what was going on. But the field, this infinite intelligence knew because I had told it. I'd been clear. That was in 2015. I started in 2007 writing a desire statement for my ideal partner. So I've been working on this for a while. Mm -hmm. Just I had to end a marriage first. I still had some lessons to learn, but now I'm at a place where I'm starting to really embody the lessons from the past relationships. And I'm loving little Jan. I'm listening to her. I'm present. I'm not giving her away to a man. I'm not in any codependent relationships. I'm just loving myself up. Right. And so I leave the retreat finally and I end up long story short on a plane the next day that I wasn't supposed to be on four days early and sit next to my husband. Lance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So beautiful. Yeah. 
And the cool thing was in the vision that I had, the masculine, he is the one who comes into the divine feminine, right? And says, I see you, I honor, I bow, I want to adore you. You're my queen, you're my goddess, you're my everything. I knew that was my sign. I would know my man, Mm -hmm. my beloved, because he would show up that way. And that's how Lance showed up from the moment I met him. Mm. Mm, I love that story. Yeah, just complete devotion, opens doors, still does all of that. You know, he's just... And he co-leads these retreats with me. I keep telling him we have a second book coming out, by the way. Oh, amazing. The two of us. Mm -hmm. So it's co-authored with Lance because he's a physician Mm -hmm. and he's going to be doing a lot more of the science. So Mm -hmm. it'll be the emotional healing system, a practical guidebook, you know, to heal the past. And, you know, so he's going to be co-authoring it. And I'm super excited. It should be out by the end of the year. We're striking while the iron's hot. (laughs) Okay, perfect. I love that. And uh, how can people connect with you? How I'll have links to your website. I think I have two different websites for you. The book, all of that. How? What's the best way people can work with you? Connect with you? Yeah. So thank you for asking the. The um, JanaWilson.com is the book website, the author website. There is a link on there. There's also a video and some pictures from the book if you haven't got a chance to look. But there's a link on there that will lead you to emotional healing retreats. So emotional healing retreats is my work. It's my, you know, it's definitely my dharma. My purpose in life was to... I didn't create any of these systems. They go back to the Gita, to the Upanishads. They go back 6,000 years, Patanjali Sutras. They're mm-hmm. teachings that have been around forever. Even shadow work it goes back to the Upanishads and the Vedas. So it's, you know, Carl Jung was reading all of that. And so the system is derived of, you know, meditation and learning psychosynthesis, how our psyche is formed. It's learning how to reparent. Everything I do is taught either through acronym or through steps. Mm -hmm. So you can memorize it. So those are the best places. We're offering a group retreat twice a year right now. Mm -hmm. The next one is in September in Florida. And the next we have an online retreat. We, you know, during the pandemic, everybody was staying home and I still was leading retreats. I still was doing private work. And, but I thought this idea of at-home retreat, how about do it in on like online course where people have access to it? It'll be great for private clients, for group clients, because let's face it, you come to a retreat, you're receiving all this download of information. Mm-hmm. You need repetition, repetition, totally. repetition, repetition. Yeah. So the online retreat is... 297, 297. You have it for life. Lance and I did it fully professional, hired a videographer team who came out, videoed us. I mean, we did it all top notch so that the course is really done well. And, you know, people can access it at any time and just, you know, re-listen to the videos, the teachings. There's even recorded hypnotherapy mm-hmm. processes. So it's really rich. I'm very excited. It's going to launch 
It was supposed to launch today. I think it's maybe Monday now. (laughs) Okay. And your book comes out July 12th. Is that still the date? July 12th? It is. That's my grandson's seventh birthday. Mm. So it's in honor of him. Oh, I love that. Do you have time for a few rapid fire questions? Absolutely. All right. What is your favorite book? Favorite book? Oh, my favorite of all time. (laughs) You know, probably Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. I live my life by those laws and I teach them. And it's so, it's just distilled wisdom from these ancient teachings that Deepak, it's still his number one bestseller. He's co-authored and authored over a hundred books. Yeah. It's very small. It's very palatable. Someone can read it quick and you can apply those seven laws to every day of your life. Mm. So seven spiritual laws of success, Deepak Chopra. What are you currently reading? Mark Nepo, Things That Join the Sea and the Sky, Field Notes on Living. and I have not read this yet. I love Mark Nepo. The Book of Awakening, The Book of the Soul, Mm -hmm. he wrote. I think his story of going through cancer and the grace that he came out with and the wisdom Mm -hmm. is so remarkable. I just love the way he writes. Mm, Me too. What's one thing you know for sure? Mm, that we're here to learn, that we're we're students of life, and we're it's all about growth. It's all about learning. Everything's happening for us, not to us. And as soon as you accept that responsibility and you take 100% responsibility for the results you're creating, yep. what I know for sure is, is I'm here in this human body suit, but I'm a spirit, and I'm here to learn. Yep. Mm. Do you have a quote or a poem you'd like to leave us with? Mm, how about Rumi? You know, the earth never says to the sun, you owe me. A love like that lights up the whole world. Mm, and that's what you've done. That's what you've done for me. And I... I just am so honored to have had this conversation and to been able to read your book ahead of time. It's truly one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. And I will be coming to one of your retreats. So I already know, I know that our paths were meant to cross. So I just thank you. And when I see you, I'm going to gift you with a book autographed. Oh, yay. Perfect. (laughs) Okay. Mm, Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're ready to dive deeper into your own emotional expedition, I invite you to join me in an intimate eight-week virtual book study of Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. And in case you're not quite ready to join the study... I wanted to share a free offering that I often suggest to people as a little bit of a compass to get them started on their emotional journey, the meditation to alleviate stress. You can find the meditation and the book study linked below. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for listening. And if you loved this episode, will you please share it with a friend or two? Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you're sure to never miss a single episode.
This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.